Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You know, I sometimes see Assad supporters penetrate the ranks of uh, pro-Palestine circles, yes. and uh, I feel like it's 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 just it's a, it's a disease that needs to be removed. And it's always like this strange category of of people, by the way, that uh, somehow are very very much so invested in one cause, but are the same people that d- deny the Syrian genocide, deny the Uyghur genocide, deny even the Bosnian genocide. It's always a strange, strange ideology. And as an ummah, uh, we feel for our ummah as a whole, and we seek Allah's mercy and reward for our ummah as a whole. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. The sadness we feel after the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria is heightened by our ummatic feelings of closeness to the Muslim community. Many of those affected have been subject to years of civil war at the hands of a brutal dictator. Sadly, this is yet another disaster that has befallen this ummah and we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mercy on those that died and enter them into a place where there is eternal peace. This week, we interview Dr. Omar Suleiman to discuss the issues of earthquakes and whether they are a punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as many ascribe to these natural events, or whether they are a test. Human beings can never understand the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at any moment. We are without knowledge of the ultimate good and bad impacts of natural disasters. So I asked Dr. Suleiman to give us an understanding of the texts from the Quran and Sunnah that explain these events to us. Sadly, many, especially in the West, who may have not consolidated their iman on a strong footing, question the wisdom of Allah and fail to develop the intellectual and spiritual resilience that is required to be a believer. We tackle how to build up this store of resilience. I also take the opportunity to discuss some of the political views on the broader Syrian civil war and the inconsistencies in some political activists. Just to make one last point, following our interview with Hamza Zoltzis, the feedback we received that was overwhelmingly warm and productive was wonderful to see. However, 
Some lost the overall message of the interview, so I felt it important to underscore what I believe most sensible Muslims agree with. We have to try our best to not divide the Ummah through polemical arguments and social media soundbites. There are those with problematic approaches that strive daily to carve divisions between us and in the process destroy our very unity, igniting useless gender wars and taking pointers from the Trump rulebook, using abuse and exaggeration to form a base of supporters. We have to guard against such approaches at a time when our opponents, those that wish us harm, work daily to carve divisions and make unity seem like an impossibility. We also have to be ready to listen to all Islamic viewpoints in the community and have an open and tolerant attitude towards our Muslim brothers and sisters and try our best to advise those that err away from the public gaze and in a way to mend the gaps between us. Don't, in other words, sow hatred between the believers. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to tackle the thoughts that undermine our Islam. So focus on these and not on one another. Shaykh Omar Suleiman, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to The Thinking Muslim. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah wa It's great to be here. Barakallah Now thank you for uh, uh, joining us with such short notice. Um, but uh, as you know, uh, we're living through a period of calamity and trauma for our brothers and sisters in, in Turkey and in Syria. And um, we feel the pains through the bonds of Iman as as you mentioned recently in the khutbah, which was a, a fantastic explanation of of the situation there and how Muslims should respond. Um, a brother recently said to me, Sheikh Omar, that he felt he had recalibrated into the body of, of the Ummah and, and this catastrophe has made him realize that, you know, he belongs to something greater and bigger and it was a wake-up mm-hmm. call in many ways. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring something good from it, of course, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's still... Um, the the disaster of what those people who who are felt who feel it is is immense. Um, now, um, I want to explore uh, how we've internalized uh, the situation of the earthquake. Many Muslims, especially here in the West, have um, entertained doubts. We can say about the wisdom of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala regarding these events, and you spoke of that in your khutbah. Uh, but in a broader sense, I think there are many questions that we need to crystallize in our own minds about our own iman. Uh, are these natural disasters uh, the consequence of Allah's wrath? Is, has Allah punished us for some deed? Uh, is it a test for us as, as Muslims? Do our sins have anything to do with these disasters? Uh, what is the status, of course, of those who die uh, in these earthquakes? I want to clarify all of these subjects uh, as we go along. So let's start with the most obvious question. Uh, are earthquakes a punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? First of all, Jazakumullah khayran for having me on and uh, I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have mercy on our brothers and sisters, Amen. to accept them as shuhada, to accept them as martyrs and to make it easy for their families and to unite this ummah together, to allow it to function as one body and for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be pleased with this ummah. Allahumma ameen. Uh, the question, um, are earthquakes a punishment? Um, everything that happens when we speak of natural disaster has some element of punishment in it. However, the question is, are they only a punishment? And are they only for those who are immediately struck by it? Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, 
there's an idea I think that sometimes clicks in our minds and maybe it's natural because of the way that we function in our own lives with discipline and reward and punishment that uh, the question, are earthquakes a punishment, might seem like, are earthquakes a punishment for the people in Syria and the people in Turkey? And this is where we really need to expand on this idea of punishment and reward and a wake-up call and a mercy. Now, when we talk about the extent of the earthquake being a punishment, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions to us that um, there is no doubt about it that corruption has appeared on the land and on the sea because of what man's hands have earned. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, So that they may taste some of what they have done, the circumstances of some of what they have done. And Allah says, And so that they may come back to him. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, every disaster is somewhat framed within this ayah the earning of man, the earning of our collective sins leads to certain things happening in this world that are meant to do two things. Number one, to have us taste some of what we have done. Number two, to call us back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah says, so that they may come back to him. So the most natural way to speak about these things is that they are a wake-up call. They are to bring us back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, when we talk about the specific people, whether they are being punished or not, uh, every single person is being tested in an individual way, even if they are struck by a collective tragedy. So when the Prophet ﷺ is speaking, for example, about the end of times, when you have large-scale massacres and people as a whole being overtaken by certain disasters, uh, everyone, يُبْعَثُ عَلَىٰ إِمَانِهِ أو يُبْعَثُ عَلَىٰ حَالِهِ uh, that everyone will be resurrected in accordance with their faith. Everyone will be resurrected in accordance with in accordance with their deeds or in accordance with their state. That means that certain things can happen to a collective group of people, but individually there is a pathway back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's a collective wake-up call for all of us, uh, but at the same time it means something different for each and every single individual, and it's not specific to that group of people. So this is not for the people of Turkey and Syria specifically. This is for all of mankind to turn back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And those that were believers, bi ta'ala, uh, this will be a rahmah for them in the ultimate sense. You know, subhanAllah, the way I started off my khutbah was, imagine looking at this from the other side of the portal. You know, this is one of the largest catastrophes that we have ever seen uh, or that we've seen for a very long time. Yes. And on the other side of that portal, this is perhaps one of the largest entrances of shuhada at a single moment that has happened for a very long time. And when the shaheed comes back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there is a celebration in the heavens. And so those souls are being received and dressed with Allah's pleasure ta'ala, and given an abode of pleasure ta'ala. So it really comes back to our perspective and our perception. The entire point is, how do I take this and internalize this in a way where I am not just directly implicated, but I'm expected to have a direct response? Did my sins have something to do with this? And can my good deeds have a meaningful impact on alleviating this? So what's the message to me? Not what's the message to them. You know, if, if it hits a house, you know, it, it could have different implications for the mother and the son, right? 
what's the implication to me, even from a distance to come back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because we don't know when the next disaster happens. We don't know when our return back to Allah is. And of course, as the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, you know, when, when we're talking about how to think of these things productively, uh, he said sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when he was asked, when is the hour? He pointed to the young boy and said that if you live long enough to see that child have gray hair, your hour would have already come. So while you're thinking about this grand scheme of things, the signs of the hour and when is the hour, when is the hour, when is the hour? Well, if you don't live to see the day of judgment, you will live to see death. And both of those will end up in the exact same place, which is your reckoning. So what have you done to prepare for your reckoning? Leave the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to him and instead internalize the lesson for you and respond the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said. Let them go back to Allah. And subhanAllah, there's a direct connection then uh, to what we say as believers. Those who, when they are struck by tragedy, they affirm right away to Allah we belong and to Allah we return. You're not going to say with any meaningful sincerity when tragedy strikes you. If you have completely removed yourself from belonging to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a abd of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for your entire life, that you don't act like you're a servant or slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then suddenly when tragedy hits, we belong to Allah. No, you're living your life belonging to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And anything that reminds you of your eventual return to him simply allows you to refine your trajectory and to be more intentional about having a good ending so we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that for all of us. Amen. Now you've talked about how we should respond to uh, these sorts of events, these sorts of calamities. But if I may press you on uh, the motives, or the motives are the wrong word, the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, can we definitively say from the text, from, from Revelation, uh, that earthquakes are always um, uh, in at the occurrence of sins that are accumulated in the Ummah? So there are different types of collective punishment that we find in the Qur'an, right? So if I was to ask you about destroyed nations, hmm. who do you think about right away? Lut salam's nation or Shoaib's, Shoaib salam's nation, yes. Exactly. So you think about the nations that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed and the Prophet said that Allah does not deal with this ummah in that way. So this is an important distinction to make, okay. right? So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks to us about the destroyed nations of the past, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Every one of them was punished for their specific sin. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, so some of them we sent um, uh, like a, a violent wind upon them, a sayha. Uh, some of them, uh, or, or we, we pelted them with stones. Some of them were seized by a violent wind. Uh, some of them were swallowed by the earth. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and there are amongst them those who we have drowned. But at the same time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that he did not wrong them, but rather it was them uh, who were wronging themselves. They were. It was they who were wronging themselves. So the halak, that idea of halak, of a, a destroyed nation, 
does not apply to this ummah. Uh, this ummah in particular has been granted amnesty from that type of halak, from that type of uh, destruction. So the very famous hadith where the Prophet says, that I asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for uh, three things and he gave me two of them. Uh, but he, uh, but but he uh, spared me, or rather, he did not grant me the request, the third request. The Prophet ﷺ mentioned that I asked Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, "Anna yuhlika ummati," that Allah would not destroy my nation with famine, and that Allah would not destroy my nation with drowning. Right? And in one narration, the Prophet ﷺ talks about the idea of being destroyed by an external enemy. That we would not be destroyed, halak, the way that the nations of the past were. But the Prophet ﷺ said, the one that Allah ﷺ did not grant him was, uh, that their misfortune is not amongst them. Meaning their internal divisions, their internal divisions are for them. And this is where I, I spoke about this hadith, um, uh, ummati ummatun marhuma, that my nation is a nation that has the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet said, it's adab, it's punishment is in this world and none of it is in the hereafter. Collectively as an ummah, I want you to follow me inshallah ta'ala if you can with this, because there are words here, halak, which is the destruction, the wiping out of an ummah. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen to the ummah of Muhammad sallallahu Halak. Uh, but adab, punishment, happens to it only in this life, not in the hereafter. And the Prophet ﷺ mentions that it's al-fitan wal-qatil wal-zalazil in different uh, order. Uh, it's the tribulations and the uh, the death and destruction and al-zalazil and the earthquakes. And Abu Hurairah he commented and he said that uh, that in the uh, that this nation is a nation that has been covered with the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. لا عذاب عليها إلا ما عذبت هي أنفسها there is no punishment for it except that which it brings upon itself. So this is where it gets tricky now. All right. There is no halak, but there is adab. Mm -hmm. And the adab, the punishment, the hardship that comes upon it has a direct human involvement with it. But then not everyone has done something to deserve uh, or, 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 or to warrant punishment. And so that's where we can say that the human involvement, the collective sinning, brings about some sort of punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but not everyone who is affected by that collective punishment is actually being punished. Some of them are purely facing or purely receiving rahmah in the process, mercy in the process. And even some of those who are being punished might be receiving mercy in the process because it may be an expiation of their sins. But for some, it's an expiation of sins. For some, it is just an elevation of their degree. Hmm. So the collective attitude of the ummah can bring about punishment upon the ummah. The collective attitude of mankind, of humanity, can bring about punishment to humanity. But again, the individual trajectories will be different. And this particular ummah uh, does not receive halak. It will not be wiped out the way that previous nations were. So what do we take from that in the mm. practical collective sense? Mm. That look, there is a lesson that obedience brings about barakah and disobedience brings about bala. Uh, obedience brings about blessing. Disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings about uh, hardship. So when Allah says, 
that if the people of the city would have believed and had taqwa, belief means that they abandoned shirk. Uh, this ummah abandoned shirk, right? Amanu. Uh, what taqwa is abandonment of sin. Taqwa is the abandonment of sin. Allah said if they abandoned idolatry or they abandoned polytheism and they abandoned sin by having belief and taqwa in their place, then we would have opened for them the barakah. We would have poured upon them the blessings of the heavens and the earth. So there's a general idea here in the Quran between that ayah and the ayah of uh, the the uh, the facades, the corruption, the evil that appears on land and on sea because of what man's hands have earned. And then there's one more ayah that I'll throw into the mix here. Uh, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions um, that... Um, that, that when they turned away from فَلَمَّا نَسُوا مَا ذُكِّرُوا بِهِ فَتَحْنَا عَلِيهِمْ أَبْوَابَ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ حَتَّى إِذَا فَرِحُوا بِمَا أُوتُوا أَخَذْنَاهُمْ بَقْتَى فَإِذَا هُمْ مُبْلِسُونَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that when, that had they responded to his reminder, had they responded to his reminder, um, and in this particular case, when they failed to respond to his reminder, when they failed to respond to his reminder, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we open the doors for dunya for them until they were pleased with what they had and then suddenly it was seized from them and they were left in a state of despair. So Allah mentions the possibility of punishing people and punishing nations even with wealth and with power as a form of which is being pulled into an eventual collapse. And we see this in the history of tyrants. We see this in the history of empires and dictators, right? That they get to a place where they think that they are immune. They get to a place where they think that they have uh, been able to outsmart the divine and able to exploit uh, all of, you know, all of those that are subjected to their power until suddenly there's a collapse, right? And so the idea of being punished with ease, just as that is possible on an individual level, Allah might punish you with your wealth. Hmm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala might punish you with your power on an individual level. Likewise, nations can be punished with their wealth and with their power because it's a temporary setting up for a collapse and for something from within. So I know I probably didn't yeah. answer your question. No, but the no, point you did. Is that individual trajectories, yes. there's the collective, and then even within the collective, there are nuances uh, that, that occur there. Uh, in your in your answer, you uh, mentioned the word test, and uh, we will be tested by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And uh, there are many narrations, many hadith about testing. I came across a hadith that a man will be tested until he walks on the earth uh, free from sin. Right. Uh, and there are many, many narrations like this. Um, can you explain with a little bit more detail, what, what are these tests that we should expect as believers? Allah will test you with something of al-khawf, fear. Allah will test you with the decrease of health, with the decrease of wealth, with all sorts of trials, sometimes uh, tyranny. But Allah categorizes all of those tests with specific uh, you know, with, with the specific manifestation of those tests, but then says at the end of it all, But if you're patient in any one of those tests, this is a bushra for you. 
This is the glad tidings for you. Because those uh, who are tested and then who are able to affirm in that test to Allah we belong and to Allah we return, uh, they will have the praise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that they will have the praise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and mercy, and they are considered amongst the successful. I think the idea here is that on the day of judgment, um, Ahlul Bala and Ahlul Afia are two broad categories the Prophet gave to us. The people who have been tried and the people who have been spared. Now, everyone has some degree of Afia and some degree of Bala, some degree of, of ease in this life and some degree of Bala, some degree of hardship. But there are people who live a life that is overwhelmingly one of test. And there are people that live a life that is overwhelmingly one of privilege. When they're sorted out on the day of judgment, you know, how you were from Ahlul Bala, uh, you really don't care. You're actually pleased to be from Ahlul Bala on the day of judgment. You're pleased to be from those who are genuinely or generally tested. Uh, because at the end of the day, the cure for all of that is Jannah, right? What is the glad tidings of? The glad tidings is of Jannah. And so when a person enters into Jannah, and they're asked, have you ever even seen sadness? Hmm. You know, the scholars mentioned, subhanAllah, that, that books is not just the circumstance, the physical circumstance, but it's even the trauma of the circumstance, right? You don't even remember the trauma of the circumstance. You don't even remember the sadness. The person would say, I don't know what sadness is anymore. Hmm. I don't know what you're talking about, right? Because the sadness has gone away. So then these physical manifestations of test and trial, whether they are in our health, whether they are in our wealth, whether they are in our political circumstances, whatever it may be, all of them simply become means by which we attain the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Should we be patient and should we use every one of those tests as a means by which we come back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's true on an individual level and true on a collective level. So yes, Allah will test a person until that person meets Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without any them, without any sin. Uh, it is a means of purification. It's a means of expiation. And that's the rahmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the believer, the believer never suffers in this life without purpose and without the potential of reward. That's a rahmah. That is an incredible mercy. That there is nothing that can happen to a believer that cannot be converted into a great good, a greater good than what has happened to them. Nothing, whether it is inflicted by another human being or if it is something that happens in a quote-unquote natural way, nothing happens to the believer that cannot become a means of coming close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when someone comes up to me and says to me, and this happens, by the way, in almost every lecture that I give, hmm. uh, and, and I'm sure any imam that you ask that does a Q&A anywhere will say that they get asked this question, um, how do I know if it's a test or a punishment from Allah? That's literally a question that I can anticipate in every single Q&A, subhanAllah, anywhere in the world. And no matter how many times you answer it, you feel like the person just needs to hear it again. Is that that depends on your response. Because everything that comes your way, whether it was something that came as a result of a sin that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you an opportunity to come out of, or an expiation that came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the way that you respond is going to determine whether or not that incident is favorable to you. So the question 
did it originate out of punishment or did it originate out of mercy is an irrelevant question then instead how do i make this a favorable event in my life to my relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hereafter. If you respond with coming closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and repenting from an obvious sin that you are committing, and of course, in the general sense, making tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then it will be favorable for you, and it will be a rahmah, because Jannah is the rahmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah calls it his rahmah. It is his mercy. So you will attain a greater share of your Jannah as a result of that, and that's what you should be worried about. And should we then as believers want to be tested more in this life by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Is that a wish we should be seeking? SubhanAllah, there are so many narrations that um, that uh, that speak to this attitude because you can imagine some of the companions who were so Jannah-oriented had mm. this thought. Mm. And... Um, you know, I, I remember the narration of Rabbana Atina fi dunya hasna fi al-akhirati hasna wa qina adab al-nar. That narration, the Prophet saw a young man who was extremely sick and he asked him, Hal kunta tad'u Were you making dua with something? He said, I was making dua that, Oh Allah, whatever it is that you were going to punish me with, punish me with it in this dunya so that I don't have to be punished in the hereafter. And the Prophet said, SubhanAllah, subhanallah, la tutiquhu. You would not be able to handle it. Don't say that. <laughs> Instead, say, Rabbana atina fi dunya hasana wa fil akhirati hasana wa qina adab nar Say, oh Allah, grant us the best of this life and the best of the hereafter and protect us from the hellfire. The believer doesn't ask Allah for tests. Mm. The believer asks Allah for rank. This is the most important distinction that you can find subhanallah consistent through all of the ahadith of the prophet and the supplications from the righteous pious predecessors in this regard that the prophet said seek the rank not the circumstance Mm. so for example when the prophet says and i spoke about this hadith in in the uh in in the khutbah Mm. when he said that there are two things that the believer hates he hates death. And death can be better for the believer than fitna. Or in fact, it is better for the believer than fitna. Meaning what? If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes the person uh, before fitna in their deen, something that would cause them what is greater than death, which is a decrease in their share in the afterlife, the believer still hates death, but death is better than being in that fitna. Uh, and he hates the decrease of wealth. No one wants to be poor. And you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for halal risk, right? As part of your dua, you ask Allah for halal sustenance. But the Prophet says, that less wealth is less accountability on the day of judgment. So how do we reconcile this with the duas of the Salaf? One of my favorite duas uh, of the Salaf uh, is a dua from Salam ibn Muti'ah. Uh, anhu, he said, Allahumma in kunta balafta ahadan min ibadika salihin, darajatan bibala, fabalir niha bilafia. Oh Allah, if you have, and actually it's, if you go to the series I did a few years ago called Prayers of the Pious, it's somewhere in the middle days, 13, 14, 15, 16, somewhere there. Hmm. Oh Allah, Allahumma in kunta. Oh Allah, if you have allowed one of your servants to arrive at a rank 
because of bala, because of tragedy, then allow me to arrive at that same rank with afia, with ease. What does this tell you? Ask Allah for the rank. Don't ask Allah for the test. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses to send you the test as a means of getting you to that rank, then accept it with grace. Because that might be the only way that you get to that rank. And if you're sincere in your talab, if you're sincere in your ask for that rank, then you will endure whatever it takes to get you to that rank. But you won't ask Allah for the hardest path to it. You'll ask Allah for the rank. You'll ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to not be uh, amongst those that are tested in their deen. You'll ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant you a light hisab on the day of judgment. So for you hasab or hisab and yasila. Uh, you, you, you know, to have a light hisab, a light accountability, and to even enter you into paradise without questioning you and without punishing you in any way. But implied in that is, oh Allah, I want this rank with you. And I'm going to accept what comes my way in order to deliver me to this rank. So in your answers, you, you talk about we should be less concerned about the specific wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala behind a calamity, more concerned about how we respond to a calamity. Because the response, as you said, could be a punishment or could be a reward, the way we respond to events. So how does a believer with Iman, you know, if you were to, if a Muslim um, experience a personal, a tragic loss, um, you know, a, a child passes away, a parent passes away, uh, they're involved in an earthquake or other natural disasters. How should a believer respond to such events? What should they do and what should they abstain from doing? So are you talking about the believer that is in the midst of it? In the midst of it. How should he respond to you? The perfect response is the one in which you channel your pain to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, asking him for his reward. The difference between a sabr wal ihtisab, patience, is to hold yourself from responding in a way that would decrease your reward. So just being silent and not questioning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, you know, maintaining the course is a form of patience. Habsun nafs, it's holding yourself back from responding in a way that's unfavorable. Of course, the worst thing that you could do is you could uh, allow it to lead you to question Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to commit sin. So it's not bringing you back to Allah, it distances you from Allah, and it causes you to sin rather than to return to him. So that's mm. the worst thing that you could do. Mm. And then in between, there is sort of this, just take it, you know, roll with the punches as an expression that we'd use, right? Just take it and just, I'm just going to maintain the course, right? As I am. But then there is ihtisab, uh, which is as-sabr li thawab as Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah says, it is patience with the goal of being rewarded. So channeling your patience to asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a reward. So, oh Allah, as I have been tested with a hardship in this life, let it be a means for the removal of a greater hardship in the hereafter. Oh Allah, as you've taken this blessing from me in this dunya, replace it with a greater blessing in the akhirah. Mm -hmm. So it's channeling the sabr immediately to reward. That's the greatest response that you can have. And subhanAllah, we, we find that the Messenger وسلم, in his perfect example, he demonstrated the way that you can still be perfectly human, but still ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a perfect reward. 
look, the pain that he felt, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, when uh, his son Ibrahim passed away. I mean, it's a it's it's a it's a painful narration to read because you don't want to see the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam suffer. Like you don't even want to read about the Messenger alayhi wasallam suffering, suffering, mm -hmm. right? And it's clear that that was one of the most difficult things that he ever dealt with was when Ibrahim, his son, passed away. I mean, and, and even the imagery that Anas anhu gives to us that uh, the Prophet Sallallahu tears were dropping on the corpse of Ibrahim. I mean, he's holding his dead son for the first time and the tears of the Prophet Sallallahu are dropping on the body of Ibrahim. Can I tell you something, SubhanAllah, this past khutbah that we gave, I want you to imagine this, and this is a tangent, but it's a, it's a powerful connection to this. This past khutbah, we prayed janazah on a three-month-old baby girl uh, and her father Alauddin who happens to be Syrian as well so he subhanallah you think about test trial they they leave from Syria they come here and they were tested with the death of their three-month-old baby hmm. I saw I saw him and um, I couldn't help but notice the way he was internalizing the khutbah and you can see him moving his lips alhamdulillah 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 and it was so painful to do the janazah because, you know, a three-month-old baby, it's like a shoebox mm. between jackets in, in the front row. Like it's, it's, it's that small of a casket, you know? And subhanAllah, we're, we're sitting here talking about we trust in the wisdom of Allah and we trust and we hope for the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you have a man who's not just connecting to the devastation of the images of Syria and Turkey, but whose worst trial is most immediate to him. And no one else is experiencing in that congregation what that man is experiencing, right? At the moment in particular. The Prophet ﷺ gave us a perfect response because he cried ﷺ, but his rahmah for his child did not distract him from seeking the rahmah of Allah. Hmm. His mercy for his child, the love the Prophet ﷺ had for his child, did not distract him from seeking not just the rahmah of Allah, the mercy of Allah, but the rila of Allah subhanahu wa the pleasure of Allah through that process. So the Prophet said, the heart feels pain. This is not just the eyes shedding tears. The heart feels pain. And the eyes are shedding tears. Hmm. And make no mistake about it, we are over the departure of Ibrahim, la mahzunun. We're grieving right now. La mahzunun, la mahzunun. But at the same time, we only say that which is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why do we only say that which is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Because we seek the rila, the reward, the pleasure, the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with this tragedy. But we know through this incident that Allah azawajal has not burdened us to where we can't feel grief and pain when we go through the tragedy. Hmm. It's just that in the midst of your grief and your pain, can you still maintain your perspective? And you can't maintain your perspective if you don't know your purpose. And if your purpose is paradise, then you will be able to always maintain perspective through those tragedies and devastation. But you don't have to like the specific test. You just have to seek Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's reward. You don't have to enjoy the test. Uh, if I may, I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's, a, but it's more of a theological point, yes. but it's a beautiful one. Yeah. Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah mentions uh, the, the comparison between the way the Prophet responded to the death of Ibrahim and the way that Fudayl ibn Ayyad, uh, Fudayl ibn Ayyad rahimullah was a great scholar, responded to the, the death of his son. So I, I do this with my students and the first person, subhanAllah, that I actually heard cite this uh, this particular example was Sheikh Muhammad al-Shanawi 
who wrote uh, the paper at Yaqeen on the question of, of God's existence and evil. Hmm. So, subhanAllah, you studied this text. It's a powerful one. Ibn Taymiyyah said, if you look at Fulayl ibn Ayyam, uh, Fulayl used to have a son that would pray behind him. And when he heard the verses of heaven and hell, they were very severe for him. And so he'd look before he would lead the prayer to see if his son was there. And he'd avoid certain ayat that might trigger that type of response from his son. So he didn't see his son there one day. But he started leading the salah and he started to read some of those verses. And then he heard a collapse in the congregation. And afterwards, his son was there. His son had collapsed and his son eventually died. They even called him Qatil al-Qur'an, the one who was killed by the recitation of the Qur'an because he was so moved. I mean, he, he, he had such a reaction to those verses that it led to his death. Now imagine the way Fulaid was feeling. This was his favorite son. He was a righteous son who loved the Qur'an, who was a repentant servant to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Fulayl could be taken by the shaitan to say, this is your fault. You read these verses. Imagine how Fulayl was feeling. Now, mm -hmm. Fulayl came to the janazah the next day and he was smiling, completely smiling. And when they asked him why, he said, I wanted to show my pleasure with the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I wanted to show my ridla, my pleasure with the qada of Allah, with the, with the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, if you compare Fulay's response to the response of the Prophet wasallam to Ibrahim, yes. to the simple eye, someone might mistakenly say that Fulay's response was a better response. It was a more religious response. Hmm. But in reality, it was actually the Prophet wasallam. Now, what does Ibn Taymiyyah say? He said, Fulayl had to choose between two emotions. The rahmah he was feeling for his child, the mercy he was feeling for his child, and the rida, the pleasure that he had with the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in order to perfect the rida, he had to completely negate the rahmah part because he knew that if he leaned into that in any way, that it might take away from, it might deteriorate that pleasure with the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So because he was unable to balance the two emotions perfectly, he chose the one that he thought was more important, which was being pleased with the decree of Allah. But the Prophet ﷺ perfected both emotions at the same time. Fantastic. He perfected that being pleased with the decree of Allah as well as that having mercy for his child. And that is the perfect response of a mu'min to test and trial. Is that I am in pain. You created me to feel pain. Hmm. But at the same time, I'm not going to let that pain take me away from the pursuit of your pleasure. And in fact, I'm going to channel that pain and say, Inna lillahi wa Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah ala kulli hal. I'm pleased with Allah. I praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala despite whatever I'm going through. Because Allah who took away that blessing bestowed it upon me. I had no right to have that blessing bestowed upon me in the first place. And in his mercy, he allows me to pursue a greater blessing when he takes that blessing away from me in his mercy, in his divine wisdom, and in his divine mercy. And I pray Allah azza wa jal never allows us to go through test and trial uh, without reward. That, that everything that we are tested with in this life, whatever that may be, and we don't know what it's going to be, subhanAllah, but that it be a means of the alleviation of any test and trial in the hereafter and that it be a means of pursuing his reward and that we, we don't succumb uh, to our tests. Rather, we're able to cast them uh, into that, that greater perspective at all times. I mean, exactly. Now, 
I cannot say this with any certainty, but when I observe those who have come from underneath the rubble in Syria or in in Turkey, um, they all praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They seem to have a deep-rooted contentment with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They come out, there was some who come out and, and say, I haven't prayed yet, I need to pray my salah. And there is this connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is astonishing. Their iman is, is amazing to me, actually, when I when I observe that. But to contrast that with, uh, and again, I could be generalizing here, but there are many in the West who find it very difficult, even from afar, to rationalize, to to be able to deal with such situations. And uh, they automatically ask questions uh, about their faith. And um, they question why, for example, would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is, you know, these people speaking, why would, and I've seen it on social media, why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, after uh, the Syrian people face so many calamities, once again they face another calamity, a natural calamity, Whereas Assad is, you know, um, smiling in front of the cameras and and uh, you know talking as if uh, he's he's free from any any blame or any sin, uh, and so they see this evident disproportionality here of 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 pain, and that leads them to question Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. And again, I I think I feel that is a it's a it's more of a Western reaction. And again, that's probably a generalization, but. What's going on here? What What's the difference between the man, the simple man, sometimes coming, you know, and the lady, who who uh, who uh, uh, is saved from these disasters, and us here in the West who who question all the time, um, and and uh, feel that weakness. You know, I'll, I'll say from a, and I might have a different perspective on this in one in one way, which is mm-hmm. that. I don't like actually um, the way that cameras are shoved in the faces of victims right away. I actually don't like that. Sure. And, and subhanAllah, when you when you work in refugee camps and you go to some of these disaster zones, it can actually be very insulting uh, that people immediately throw a camera up in their face and how are you feeling? And, uh, you know, alhamdulillah, they're able to respond in a proper way. Uh, but I'll just say that that is, it is somewhat tied into this bigger picture, by the way. Mm. Um which is, are we trying to come to terms with their tragedy or are we trying to help them through their tragedy? Right. Because sometimes it, it feels more like the former and it feels like we need the, we need their inspiring responses to get us through our intellectual crisis. <laughs> so it's like, you know, completely about us and not about them at all. People that are in devastation, again, especially the believing men and women, subhanAllah, they have a level of clarity at times that is really beautiful. It is powerful, and it can put you to shame. Uh, I can tell you that people that that have the greatest theological clarity, or as a collective, that I think that I've met are the people of Gaza. Sure, the people of Gaza have incredible theological clarity. That doesn't mean that they haven't been traumatized. That doesn't mean that they haven't been suffering. But incredible theological clarity, connection to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and like you said, their ability to say Alhamdulillah through it all and to continue to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, when the Prophet mentions that uh, the angels, uh, the angels are spreading their wings for the people of Asham, spreading their wings upon the people of Asham. I often think about, you know, who is that, who is spoken about that way uh, as an individual in our tradition? It's actually Asya, 
right? The angels were spreading their wings over her, even as Fir'aun was torturing her. Hmm. What does that show you? That sometimes there is a direct connection between the angels and their wings and the tribulations from other human beings. But Asiya saw her place in paradise. Asiya, alayhi salam, connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a result of those moments of hardship that she faced in this life. She attained an incredible eternal reward that we still read about uh, for as long as this life uh, continues to exist or as long as this world continues to exist. So the, the angels spread their wings for Ahl al-Sham. Um, when you go to the people of Asham and you go to Syria and you speak to people there, the refugee camps, some of the people who, who I feel like have seen horrors that I've never heard of were the people who suffered uh, in Ghulta. The Ghulta massacre was one of the bloodiest and most disgusting massacres that has occurred in our lifetime. This was the, the chemical, chemical weapons attack. You Correct. Know, what happened to Damascus, yeah. people... What happened to the people of Ghulta, subhanAllah, is unlike anything I've personally ever heard. I mean, the way that, I, that, that people speak about that particular experience. Yet, subhanAllah, their connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is incredible. And what I, what I remember thinking to myself after going to a, a camp that specifically had people that suffered in Ghulta was, these people have absolutely no appetite for this, for this dunya. They don't care about this dunya anymore. Like they are basically waiting as nomads in this dunya for their place in al -Jannah. That's how they speak. That's how they talk. They speak in a way to where they're despondent only in regards to the matters of this world, the affairs of this world. They are completely uh, certain somehow in their position in the hereafter in a way that's just beautiful and inspiring. That's a miracle from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is an absolute miracle from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to see that within those people. Now, as for Bashar al-Assad and the tyrants, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows the zalim, the transgressor, the oppressor, to grow in their tyranny until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala seizes them. He gives them, gives them time, gives them, you know, uh, these few moments by which they are spared until they feel safe and then Allah seizes them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never let them go again. They will suffer as a result of that. And that's why, uh, your Lord does not forget is comfort to the oppressed and uh, a warning to the oppressor. Your Lord does not forget. As Imam Shafi rahimahullah, when he spoke about this idea of Allah not forgetting, he said that the same affirmations of Allah not forgetting in the Quran uh, that cause such or, or bring about such comfort to the oppressed are the most severe of warnings to the oppressors because your Lord does not forget. There's this idea sometimes that we might have when we are amongst those that are wrong, like people have forgotten the tragedy. People have forgotten what has been done to me. Your Lord does not forget. A person who has committed a wrongdoing but has not faced any consequences might think after some time, uh, all has been forgotten. I don't have to worry anymore. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying in the Quran that do not think that he is ghafil, do not think that he is heedless in regards to what the oppressors do. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying 
your Lord does not forget. So we believe in that divine recourse. We believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala restoring the balance. And we believe that that restoration comes with such a reward that would allow for those that suffered in this life to forget their pain in the first place and such a punishment to the oppressors that would take away any pleasure that they felt in their capacity of oppressing in the first place. The one who goes to hellfire will not remember the pleasure of this world. Hmm. And the one who goes to paradise will not remember the hardship of this world. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala crafts those trajectories. And Ahl-Sham who are tested. Uh, and of course, Ahl-Sham are, are you know, a broad category. Palestine is part of Asham as well, right? Hmm. Palestine is part of Asham. Uh, they have a trajectory with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They have a trajectory with Allah. I'll share this with you, subhanAllah, not to make this about Gaza, but we forget Gaza as yes. human beings yeah. and what happens in Palestine. I was speaking with a cousin of mine in Gaza who I've never met in person. And he got a job offer. SubhanAllah, his name is Ashraf. Mm -hmm. um, he got a job offer to go somewhere else. And uh, it would have been the relaxation of hardship for him. He's never lived anywhere but Gaza. He could have moved to a country and had a pretty good salary and enjoyed his life and moved his family there. And he said, but I didn't want to lose the reward of being from Al-Murabitun. I didn't want to lose the reward that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about of those people that hold down the fort. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I was looking at him, it was over Zoom, and I said, I could not, I, I don't think I could do what you just did. I don't think so. Like you have an opportunity, airstrikes, hardship, the embargo being choked off from every direction constantly. You had the opportunity to go somewhere else. And he said, I don't want to lose that reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he chose to just to bear the, the consequences, bear the hardship in this life and to stay the course. It's, that's nothing short of a miracle. Um, and I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant him and all of those people the reward. And the Prophet ﷺ talks about the resilience of these people. They're just, they're, they're not even dissuaded by those who have betrayed them. Uh, the people of Palestine are being betrayed constantly by, uh, you know, Muslim nations, right? Muslim rulers. Yes. And they are as resilient as they've ever been. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fortify them and reward them and give them victory. And the people of Syria are being betrayed too. Yes. The, the normalization of Assad is a shame. It's a, it's a stain on, on this, on this ummah, a stain on the world and all those who claim to be for, for human rights. It's honestly one of the most disgraceful things. You know, I sometimes see Assad supporters penetrate the ranks of, uh, pro-Palestine circles. Yes. And, uh, I feel like it's, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a disease that needs to be removed. And it's always like this strange category. Of, of people, by the way, that uh, somehow are very, very much so invested in one cause, but are the same people that d deny the Syrian genocide, deny the Uyghur genocide, deny even the Bosnian genocide. It's always a strange, strange ideology. And as an ummah, uh, we feel for our ummah as a whole, and we seek Allah's mercy and reward for our ummah as a whole. Um. As we're on the subject of consistency, being politically and spiritually consistent, um, 
you talk about uh, these people who have um, perverse political opinions. You know, on the one hand, they stand against tyranny in Palestine. And on the other hand, um, they even go to the point where they doubt uh, the persecution of Muslims of Syria. Um, how do we as Muslims uh, put ourselves into a position where we can be politically consistent such that we're constantly on the side of those who are oppressed and against those oppressors? Well, I think the first obvious part of that is, is never find yourself in the ranks of the oppressors or whitewashing uh, oppression in any way, whether it is from a disbeliever towards a believer or from a believer to a believer, even from a believer to a disbeliever. Sure. Uh, be be careful of vulm. Be careful of being associated with vulm of, of oppression. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ warned so severely against it, and the Prophet ﷺ took a society where tribal loyalties trumped all principles, and he replaced it with ummatic solidarity and thinking, as well as holding each other accountable as part of solidarity and ummatic thinking, to where we don't allow the oppression in our name. Uh, or from our brothers and sisters of anyone else who's not even a Muslim. Mm. So be careful uh, of, of being on the side of the oppressor in any way whatsoever. And I think that it just speaks to, it's a symptom of a greater disease, right? Of a fractured ummah. Mm. I'd also say, you know, it's important for us to think about uh, those people who are left out of the conversation conveniently uh, from our ummah. Like, subhanAllah, to me, the most, the most, um, it's interesting because I think it was your last episode was with Muadlam, right? Uh, from from Cage. Yes. The most abandoned people in our community are Muslim political prisoners. Yeah. The most abandoned human beings in our community are Muslim political prisoners. Why? Because it is so inconvenient to speak about Muslim political prisoners. Mm -hmm. uh, realize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will remember those who remember the forgotten. Allah Azza wa Jal will be especially for those who come to the aid of their brothers and sisters who have been left out and neglected and forgotten. So the consistency part is important. And then the ihsan element of this, the excellence element of this, is to look for those who have been forgotten. Consistency, um, you cannot support one genre of evil uh, and one group of oppressors in the ummah and claim to be for the oppressed in any other way. That means you're not acting on principle, you're acting in convenience or for some other motive. And then the ihsan element of this, the excellence of this, is to look for those who just don't have anyone advocating for them. Look at the Rohingya. Look at the Rohingya. How quickly, subhanAllah. I mean, like, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because what's sad, you've got those who have some sort of a cultural connection to other people in the world, um, or there is some, some sort of worldly motive that would cause that cause to be popular or to be uh, of significance to global discourse. And then you have a group like the Rohingya. I mean, they don't have any shared heritage or culture with any powerful group in the Ummah. Mm. They don't have uh, you know, their, their, their family members in the West who are successful and who are doctors and engineers that can now advocate for them or that can now economically support them. 
there is no political benefit to any Muslim nation for supporting them. And so what do you have? You're depending purely on people's iman and people's conscience to uplift them. Uh, and subhanAllah, you know, because sometimes we need we need good examples. One of the most inspiring people in the world that I've ever met is uh, Abu Bakr Tambaydu, okay. who was the Gambian uh, justice minister. Hmm. This man is the one who prosecuted Myanmar at the ICC yeah. uh, on behalf of the Gambia and, and took took them to court for genocide and spent years of his life studying the case and prosecuting the case. And subhanAllah, he did it purely out of conscience. Uh, he was he was a, a human rights lawyer in Rwanda, in the Rwandan genocide. Right. And he was in Bangladesh on just a diplomatic visit from the Gambia, and he visited the camps, the Rohingya camps, and he said it reminded him of Rwanda. And he completely turned his attention to this. Jazahullah khairah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward him. Amen. And all of these wealthy Muslim countries and the country that took Myanmar to court at the ICC, the Gambia. Just think about that. SubhanAllah. He dedicated himself to this. We need more Abu Bakrs. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, of course, and we need Abu Bakr Tambaydus. We need people with that type of uh, umatic thinking, that type of principle, that type of consistency, and of course, underlying all of that, that type of iman to drive them uh, to do something like that. On the subject of the state of the Ummah, you know, you see that um, natural disaster is, is just one element of um, the travesty that's befallen this Ummah for the last few decades. Maybe it's more acute now, but we feel it. And um, it can lead to a sense of hopelessness. There are, you know, the number of causes, the number of tribulations that we face as, as Muslims. Um, it gets to a, a point where one can say, well, we can't do very much now. Even charity doesn't seem to resolve some of these very acute problems uh, because the problems are beyond charity, maybe, because there are structural and political issues that, that affect them. How should a Muslim view uh, these travesties that we're facing, probably unprecedented travesties that we're facing as an ummah today? Well, I think that... Um it's not necessarily unprecedented in terms of the level of despair, right? Mm -hmm. uh, every generation of this ummah thought that the day of judgment was imminent, by the way. Yeah. Every generation of ummah could point to something that was happening in their time to say, this is it. Uh, if you lived in the time uh, where I believe it was 918, where the Qaramita attacked the Hajjaj mm -hmm. and essentially canceled Hajj that year, not through you know, uh, a global pandemic. No, just through Vulm, through pure oppression, murdered the Hajjaj uh, that year and stole the Black Stone. And then within the same uh, century, the Crusades are happening. And then the Mongols, I mean, it's devastation all around the Ummah. If you lived in that time, you would have, and someone told you that we'd still be around a thousand years later, you'd go, no way. <laughs> There's no way we'll still be here in a thousand years. Mm. But here we are, right? So the idea here is that the greatest tragedy to strike this ummah has already struck it. And that was the death of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And his coming and the day of judgment are like the space between these two fingers. Mm. That's it. So there's not much time left. And that means there's an increase of corruption. There's an increase of responsibility. And there is going to be a smaller group of people that are going to care about 
those two things to a level of being activated towards it. Hmm. But through that small group of people, Allah will bring about great victories and great rewards on the Day of Judgment. So it's important for a small group of people to keep at the forefront of the various you know, uh, fragments of this ummah, the ummah, hmm. for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And to work towards that ta'ala, and to see these things not in isolation of one another, but instead as as, as needing common solutions ta'ala, and as having some level of uh, you know human implication in the way that they came about, as well as human involvement in resolving them by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when we talk about the earthquakes, are we talking about the infrastructure in Syria? Are we talking about the types of buildings that they're in and the neglect that took place before them? Are we talking about the anti-refugee rhetoric within the Muslim world? Sure. We're not just talking about fascism mm. in the West, mm. uh, but what causes, you know, the Palestinians have, have been perpetual refugees, right, for the last 70 or so years, and in many nations. SubhanAllah, I was just talking to my dad about this yesterday. My father was was born uh, before Israel, alhamdulillah. He was born in 1943. So we were talking just yesterday, our dinner time conversation, we were talking about how so many countries at one point loved the Palestinians and then turned on them. Yeah. And how the, we saw that change in Jordan. You know, I go to Jordan all the time. We've got family in Jordan yeah. with the Syrians, for example, that yeah. in the beginning, we love the Syrians. There is a lot of there, there's a great connection to their cause, and then economic uh, scapegoating. Uh, you know, they're taking too many homes. They're flooding the country. Mm. It's our country, and send them back to their country. Where's the Ummah in all of that? Yeah. So you're talking about the rise of fascism in the West, but you know, think about Muslim countries turning on Muslim refugees. What does that mean? Well, the, the the fundamental problem is that they don't see the Muslim refugees as Muslims. They see them as Syrians. They see them as Uyghurs. They see them as Palestinians. They see them as Somalis. They see, they're not seeing them as brothers and sisters of the same worth and value as them that deserve the same level of support and security that, that they deserve for themselves. So we have to, we have to penetrate through these divisions that have affected the way that we see each other and that have affected the way that we see tragedies and isolation of one another as opposed to uh, part of a greater tragedy, which is uh, our uh, fragmentation at every level, religiously, politically, socially. Alhamdulillah. I want to tie up this discussion uh, with your advice on how we should build and develop our own individual spiritual resilience so that if we are affected by a test or a tragedy, we're able to respond to it in the most appropriate way. What steps should we take now? Um, you know, especially those of us who live in comfortable surroundings, we uh, we find ourselves, alhamdulillah, through Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy, we have very little to 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 um, uh, to have a problem with in, in our lives. Um, how should we uh, develop the type of mentality that your cousin Ashraf has, or the the man under the rubble has when mm -hmm. he uh, when he uh, finds that his life uh, he's been given uh, some ex a, a, some extra an extra period in his life. How do we 
um, establish that type of mentality in ourselves. One of the first surahs revealed to the Prophet was Surah Al-Muzammah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made Qiyamul Layl obligatory on the Messenger وسلم, and his companions for the beginning period of the revelation. When we look at the story of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi and his checking up on the tents at night to make sure the people were praying in their tents, before following through at Hittin. Mm. Uh, so the verse in the Nashiyat al-Layli here, Ashaddu wata'an wa aqwa muqila. The nighttime is the time where you are able to develop a greater sense of resilience and it's more suitable to the recitation of Quran and the recitation of Dua. This is an ummah of Qiyamul layl This is an ummah of Tahajjud. And you know, subhanAllah, you find uh, some of the elder Bedouin women and the 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 khaltos in some of these places and you know what subhanallah they don't if you ask them basic theological questions they can't answer them but you know what they're up an hour before fajr praying and invoking allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they're reading the quran so this is an ummah of the quran and the most suitable time to recite the quran for the honor of the quran and for developing resilience within ourselves is in our qiyam and when we forsake that qiyam we abandon our resilience as individuals and as an ummah this is an ummah of qiyam and so we all have to sort of take this calling and sometimes sometimes what will wake you up is going to be the concern that you have for your ummah at night that's what's going to wake you up that right now you know things are relatively easy for me alhamdulillah i'm i'm, I'm okay and uh, i don't have that great sense of urgency maybe that's pushing me to wake up at night but turkey syria palestine what's happening I, I need to wake up and make dua for them and we need to wake up let's just wake up 15 minutes before fajr 30 minutes before fajr let's make dua or perhaps pray qiyam in the beginning of the night but mm -hmm. this is an ummah that develops its resilience through qiyam and I know that it can sound strange at times um, for us to to harp on tahajjud when we know so many so many Muslims that don't even pray five times a day. But you know, the five times a day is the obligatory connection to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. That tahajjud is where you develop your resilience and your spe your spectacular resilience, your spectacular realize your spectacular reward. So we need to stress those individual moments with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala during the day or during the night with the Qur'an, reciting the Qur'an, connecting to the Qur'an, and then springboarding into dua, sincere dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then letting that be uh, literally the image of, of filling your car with gas. That's what that is. It's when you fuel up. And after that, it's tawasaw bil haqqi wa tawasaw bil sal. We work together as a collective to build resilience, to uh, to remind each other of our purpose, to keep one another steadfast on that purpose. You know, if you're if you were slacking uh, in the generation of the Sahaba, but then you come to the Masjid and you see Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali, that's a, that's that's an incredible iman booster, right? Yes. Like I got to get back on it, you know, yeah. and 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 stick to this, right? So there's there is a beauty to uh, the individuals who are developing that connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as individuals, finding resilience in each other. Even Allah alludes to it 
وَاصْبِرْ نَفْسَكَ مَعَ الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ رَبَّهُمْ بِالْغَدَاتِ وَالْعَشِي يُرِيدُونَ وَجْهَ Alright, so this is keeping each other patient. Those who call upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Lord, call upon their Lord day and night, seeking His reward, seeking His pleasure, coming together and keeping each other patient, building with one another. So it's going to be a small group of people, bidnanahi ta'ala, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings about great things on their hands when they work together for his sake. And they can't work together for his sake if they don't worship him alone, seeking his pleasure. So that's where the, genera the, the generating of sincerity comes. And the generating of sincere effort comes when that group of people work together and find ways to be focused and strategic, bidnanahi ta'ala, always going back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at night so that they can maintain that steam inshallah ta'ala and maintain that pursuit of his pleasure. Shaykhum Rasulullah Jazakallah you've been uh, an inspiration uh, to us and I pray that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala finds ease for uh, our brothers and sisters in Syria and, and in Turkey and uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow this conversation to help uh, those Muslims who uh, and all of us who um, uh, who would like to build that spiritual resilience? Barakallah I wanted to say, just so I don't um, lose the point, I know that this is this this is more of just speaking about this from a spiritual perspective, but really, mashallah, you know what what the brothers and sisters, some of those that you have had, like like uh, our brother Hamza Sortis, mashallah, and the brothers at Sapiens have done to answer these questions from a deep philosophical perspective, and some of the papers that I mentioned that have been written at Yaqeen Institute mm -hmm. by Sheikh Mohammed Shinawi. Dr. Talal Zani, Sheikh Suleiman Hani. Uh, I just want to say that those who are seeking the right answers, inshallah ta'ala, to build the intellectual resilience, mm. the resources are there. So be willing to put in the time for that. But all of us need the spiritual resilience, inshallah ta'ala, which is through the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and through clinging uh, to him, even if we at times don't understand, we submit ourselves. So... Those two things uh, go hand in hand, but those who require those resources, inshallah ta'ala, they're being developed in a way that they've never been developed, uh, at least in our lifetime in the English language. Yeah. Uh, so please, inshallah ta'ala, avail yourself of those, of those resources and put in the time that is necessary to resolve the intellectual doubt while also developing the spiritual resilience. Jazakallah I just didn't want to lose... No, uh, that, that, that point uh, for those brothers and sisters that might have been seeking that through this podcast. Barakallah No, I'm, I'm sure they, they found plenty from this podcast to help them. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. Barakallah Thank you very much. Shaykhum. As-salamu alaykum wa Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack. 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.